Imagine a place where time stands still and the known laws of physics don't apply. Imagine a world where it's easy to arrive but impossible to leave. Imagine forces so vast that the very fabric of space itself is warped out of existence. Hard to believe, isn't it? such places do exist. They are real. They are black holes. Hi, I'm Tanya Hill, and you're listening to the Conversation Speaking With podcast. Black holes certainly have the power to excite the imagination. They are incredibly strange objects, but they're also rather simple. A black hole exists when there is a lot of mass confined to a very small region of space. You could imagine turning the sun into a black hole. What you would need to do is shrink the sun down so that instead of it being over a million kilometres across, its diameter became just six kilometres. To turn the Earth into a black hole, you would need to shrink it down until it's as small as a sugar cube. That's where the power of a black hole comes from. All of that mass packed into a tiny space, creating immense gravity. Built by gravity, nothing can escape a black hole, not even light. Black holes can be created when massive stars die. Stars that are around 10 times the mass of our sun or more. When such a star reaches the end of its life, it explodes as a supernova. A lot of the star's mass is blown away, but it leaves behind a dense stellar core. And if the core has enough mass, it will collapse in on itself to become a black hole. Welcome back, everybody. Well, an incredible discovery in outer space has astronomers all abuzz. Scientists have found what they're calling a black hole 12 billion times more massive than our sun in our solar system. Try to wrap your brain around that one. It's now also known that there are black holes lurking at the centre of all galaxies, including our own Milky Way. But these black holes are different. They are called supermassive black holes because they contain as much mass as millions or even billions of suns. Meg Urey, the Israel Munson Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Yale University, and currently the President of the American Astronomical Society, is an observational astronomer who has specialised in supermassive black holes for much of her illustrious career. I spoke to Meg about distant galaxies and the supermassive black holes that can be found right at the heart of these galaxies. Einstein told us what a black hole was. It's a solution to his theory of general relativity, but that's a kind of a mathematical answer. And, and I think at the time, I don't really think scientists thought they existed. When I was a young 
student in, in elementary school and so on, they didn't exist. They were just a theoretical construct. And then it turns out that in certain objects, these objects that we'll talk about, sometimes called quasars or active galactic nuclei, near the centers of galaxies, the amount of energy produced there is just impossible to do with stars. And some very clever theorists showed that it was much more likely that there were black holes there, which produce a huge gravitational potential that attracts matter in, and that matter can um, heat up and glow. So what is a black hole? It's a, it's a place where matter falls in and cannot get out. And one simple way to say it is that the, the escape velocity from the horizon of a black hole is the speed of light. Escape velocity is the velocity you have to basically throw something with to get it to travel away from the gravitational body that is pulling on it. And so a black hole, because it has an escape velocity of the speed of light or higher, nothing can go faster than the speed of light, so it can't escape the surface of the black hole. A black hole's gravity is so strong that even traveling at the speed of light, 300,000 kilometers per second, the fastest that anything can travel within the universe, even then it's not possible for light to escape from the gravitational pull of a black hole. Einstein's theory of general relativity allows for the possibility of black holes because it shows how light can be affected by gravity. Light is made up of particles, we call them photons, and photons don't have mass. If light is massless, then it shouldn't get caught up by gravity, because gravity is an attraction between objects that have mass. But Einstein tells us that gravity is a warping of space-time, created by anything that has mass. Planets orbit the Sun because they are caught in the warp created by the Sun's mass. The key is that light must also follow this warped path. And a black hole warps space-time so strongly that it creates a well from which light cannot escape. As Meg Yuri explains, scientists have theorised about the existence of objects with similar characteristics to black holes long before Einstein developed his theory of general relativity. Newton's gravity, which was, you know, is 400 years old, Newton's theory of gravity, actually explains a lot about black holes, missing only by factors of a few. And I think it was John Mitchell, a, a British uh, scientist who, who invented the idea of dark stars. And his numbers may have been a little bit off because he didn't have the proper theory of gravity. But he said two interesting things. He said, one, there might be these objects that light cannot escape from. But he also said that you wouldn't be able to see them because they would be dark. But if there were other bodies nearby, you could watch their motion and deduce the presence of the dark star. So he was right on to And that's a really important, yeah, important pieces of how we study black holes is we watch the stuff outside them to infer their presence. At the heart of a supermassive black hole is one of the most mysterious things in physics, the singularity, a point where space, time, and all known laws of physics fall apart. The difference between what we now understand to be black holes and the dark stars theorised by John Mitchell and Pierre Laplace is that black holes have collapsed in on themselves to the point where the black hole's mass lies at a singularity.
A singularity is where our laws of physics break down. The warping of space-time approaches infinity. The singularity is hidden inside the black hole's event horizon. The event horizon is the closest thing that a black hole has to a surface, but it's not a physical boundary. The event horizon is the point of no return. We can't see inside the event horizon, but we can watch matter that's on the outside, material that is being drawn in towards the black hole by the strong force of gravity. It's by observing this material that scientists are able to determine the existence and properties of black holes. So matter tries to fall toward black holes because they have a strong, exert strong gravity. But in fact, it's not easy for matter to fall into a black hole. This is something maybe people don't think about. But if you think about it, okay, so the Earth is orbiting the sun uh, and has been for billions of years, but we haven't fallen in yet. Is the sun pulling on us with gravity? Yes, it has pretty strong gravity. That's why we're going in a circle around it. But we don't fall in. And the reason we don't fall in is because of angular momentum a physics concept that freshmen have struggled over for millennia. Angular momentum can be pictured by thinking about an ice skater. An ice skater spreads their arms out wide and slowly starts to spin. And as they pull their arms and legs in towards their body, it makes them spin faster and faster. They spin faster because angular momentum must remain constant or be conserved. When the ice skater brings their arms and legs in, the system has changed and to counteract this change, their spin speeds up. As matter is pulled in towards a black hole, it acquires some angular momentum, and the closer the material gets, the faster it orbits the black hole. The only way this material can fall into the black hole is by losing angular momentum, as Meg explains. So a way of thinking of it is a particle's heading toward the black hole. If it isn't headed for the absolute center of the black hole, it will instead go into orbit around it and it will stay there forever. But what happens in these active galaxies or quasars is that you have a whole lot of matter settling into a disk around the black hole. And then that matter can interact and you can have an interaction where some of the matter goes toward the black hole and some of it goes away, preserving angular momentum. Laws of physics cannot be denied. So then matter can fall in. And so these accretion disks, uh, as they're called, are places where some of the matter is moving slowly toward the black hole. And those disks, because of this friction, heat up and they glow. Mm -hmm. And they glow very brightly, especially at ultraviolet and X-ray wavelengths. And so that's what we see. Often, in shorthand, we'll say we could see a black hole, but what we really mean is we see this accretion disk around it. So it's impossible to see black holes themselves, but we can detect the stuff that is spiralling around the black hole. The accretion disk, a disk of gas and dust that glows brightly as matter is drawn towards the black hole. Quasars are active black holes. We are detecting energy from their large accretion disks that are formed around supermassive black holes. Black holes that are hundreds of millions of times the mass of our sun. Quasars shine with the light of a trillion stars. They are some of the most energetic and luminous objects in the universe, and their power comes from black holes. They are found right at the centre of galaxies that are very distant, over 10 billion light years away. So these quasars tell us about an early stage in the formation of the universe. It seems that quasars are probably activated 
by the merger of two galaxies, two big gas-rich galaxies. By themselves, the ga each galaxy has a supermassive black hole at its center, a black hole that weighs somewhere from a million to a billion times our sun. But those are not always shining in this way that we've talked about because it's, as I say, it's hard to get matter to go down close to the black hole. For but, instance, so our Milky Way has one of these yes, black holes. Yes, yes. For some reasons, it, it's not feeding it, at the moment. It, it's unusually it? dim. Yes, mm. we, we come from a very dim galaxy. I mean, it has an unusually <laughs> dim black hole, which is a good thing because, mm. you know, some of the energy that's produced uh, around black holes is not good for people. So it could sterilize the galaxy out to some radius, probably. Mm. In any case, when you have two galaxies that merge, each of them is pulling on the other and it perturbs this very circular sort of uh, arrangement and can, in some circumstances, funnel material very efficiently down onto a black hole. So you can imagine as galaxies merge, one or both of the black holes can suddenly activate and become bright. And so is the eventual outcome the idea that the two black holes themselves in each of the galaxies will join and become one enormous black hole or will they forever stay apart? So that's an excellent question. Um, if you ask theorists, they'll say they should merge, but they have a little bit of trouble getting it to happen in reasonable times. If you ask observers, we would say, you know, we don't see a lot of double nuclei. If there were two black holes, you know, if they failed to merge, yeah. you should see lots of cases of double nuclei. We see some, right. but we don't see lots and lots of them. So I don't know whether we haven't looked properly for them, Maybe we haven't done the right survey, or maybe there's a way to make them merge faster than theorists know. I think the real, that question will be answered once we have a gravitational wave detector in space that wow, can that actually see the shaking of space that comes from two black holes orbiting very close to one another. Gravitational waves are ripples in space-time, created as objects move through space. They are another prediction that comes out of Einstein's general theory of relativity more massive objects will produce larger ripples, and the merging of two black holes should produce some of the strongest gravitational waves. But even so, they are very hard to detect. Gravitational waves distort space as they pass by, but the distortion is incredibly small. To be able to detect some of the largest gravitational waves in the universe, we need to measure a change in distance on the order of one part in a sextillion. That's a billion trillion. Or to put it another way, if our gravitational wave detector could monitor the distance between the Earth and the Sun, then the variation it is looking for is as small as an atom. The development of gravitational wave detectors began in the 1960s, and there are a handful of gravitational wave observatories around the world, including a technology research centre in Western Australia. None have detected the presence of gravitational waves as yet. But the sensitivity of these instruments continues to improve, and the technology for future space-based detectors is currently being developed and tested. Once detected, gravitational waves will open up a whole new realm of astronomy a new way of gaining knowledge about the universe. It's analogous to what's happened as we've opened different wavelength intervals in astronomy. You know, Galileo was looking at optical light 
and slowly over time we've added near-infrared light, ultraviolet light. By flying above the atmosphere we can look at ultraviolet and x-ray light and so on. And, and gamma rays we can observe even from the ground. But gravitational waves are also something qualitatively different. Uh, they're not transmitted by photons, by light. Mm -hmm. And so they can travel where the photons cannot. So right now when you look out in the universe, as you know, you can only see back to a time of a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, because before that, the universe is filled with ionized particles, which don't allow light to travel very far before it scatters. It's and kind so, of like a fog. Yeah, it? it's like a fog. So there's a fog for light, but there's not a fog for gravitational waves. And so not only will we be able to see interesting phenomena like these mergers of black holes, but we can see them to arbitrary distances, uh, because the, there's no wall to gravitational waves, at least till you get to the Big Bang. Until recently, supermassive black holes were mere theory. These are giant black holes of apocalyptic proportion. Astronomers understand that a massive star will undergo core collapse at the end of its life to produce a black hole. But the supermassive black holes found at the centre of galaxies are very different. Not only are they incredibly more massive than stellar black holes, but there appears to be a strong relationship between this supermassive black hole at the centre of a galaxy and the galaxy itself. You know, back when I started doing research on black holes, people thought they were very, very rare and that they were only in a few galaxies. And I think one of the big breakthroughs that happened uh, around uh, 15 years ago was the, dis the discovery that there are black holes really in every galaxy. So that, that really gave us an idea of how they, how they could form. And one method, which I think is quite, must be happening at some level, is that Okay, when the universe first formed, it was primarily hydrogen with a bit of helium and only a tr few trace other elements. And these elements, which we sometimes call metals, any student of chemistry will know have uh, energy levels that can be excited and they emit radiation that is radiation with certain energies. So the more metals you have, the more different emission lines you have, so the more ways to cool gas. Right. Okay? When you have the very pristine gas, it has very few ways to cool by so emitting radiation. Right this is the gas the at the formation of the very first stars. Mm -hmm. When the very first stars form, which is of course before the first galaxies because they're sort of the same thing, those stars formed only of hydrogen and a bit of helium. And theory tells us that they probably were much, much bigger because they had no way to cool and so they didn't fragment in, off into littler stars. So the first generation of stars which astronomers paradoxically called population three, those were extraordinarily massive stars, perhaps hundreds to even a thousand times the mass of our sun. Those, because they're so massive, would have lived a very short time, burned up quickly, exploded as supernovae do, and left behind a black hole of perhaps a hundred solar masses of that order. Well, those of course had already occurred at the densest parts of the universe. Those are the regions around which our galaxies going to form. So it makes perfect sense that many galaxies were seeded with pretty massive black holes, 100 solar masses. And then from then they would have to create a lot of material from the surrounding host galaxy to grow to the size we see today, millions to billions of solar masses. I think that's a very good scenario and it may be right. The problem is 
that we've observed a few black holes at very high redshift. That means very high distance from us, which means not that long after the Big Bang, maybe a billion years after the Big Bang, out of the total of almost 14 billion years that we've had since the Big Bang. And uh, they're so big, I mean a billion solar masses, for example, that it's very, very hard to think of how you grow from 100 solar masses to a billion solar masses in such a short time. Just by creating material. Just by creating material, even by merging. It's just not, it seems really impossible. So then people have come up with ideas for how to get an even bigger black hole just to form in a direct collapse. And the, you can do that in principle if you don't cool the gas unevenly. Okay, if it's very uniform, then it can just keep collapsing a really big ball of gas could collapse into, say, a million solar mass black hole. But it's, you know, one thing to do with that in a computer and another to actually include all the physics and at the resolution and make it actually happen. Astronomers have discovered five monster black holes that were previously hidden by dust and gas. The British-led discovery also suggests there may be millions more supermassive black holes in the universe than were previously thought. High-energy X-rays emitted from around the newly identified black holes revealed their presence at the centre of five galaxies. And so you've mentioned about how these supermassive black holes kind of seeded the galaxies. So there's definitely a relationship between the black hole and its galaxy that kind of affects yeah. each other. Yeah, in, in yeah. So in fact, that was sort of the second big discovery of the last 15 years. Uh, first, that uh, maybe that there, every galaxy has a black hole, but then it was observed that the, the mass of the black hole seems to know about the mass of the galaxy, which is actually very strange. And let me say why, because it's not immediately obvious. Although the black hole is extremely massive, it's only a tiny percentage of the total mass of the galaxy. So for the stars in the galaxy, for most of the stars in the galaxy, they only feel the gravity of the other stars because it's so much more than the black hole. If you're close to the black hole, you feel its gravity, but otherwise not. So to observe that the mass of the black hole is proportional to the mass of stars was not immediately obvious how that happened. If the black hole were much bigger, it would be obvious that one would respond to the other. So anyway, that got people thinking, well, maybe the, the amount of matter that a black hole can accrete is somehow related to the mass of stars in the galaxy. And vice versa, maybe the mass of stars that forms in the galaxy is affected by how big the black hole has grown. And the way that could happen is that as black holes grow, as we discussed, they emit a lot of radiation. That radiation can ionize the gas heat the gas that's supposed to form stars, mm -hmm. and gas only forms stars when it's very cool. So these back and forth mechanisms are referred to as feedback, right. and there was this notion that feedback is a very important part of black hole and galaxy co-evolution. Okay, so in some ways the black hole can kind of limit then the star formation that's that's going on. Right, in, in theory. Yeah. Yeah. And, and is it also the other way as well, that the fact that you've got this black hole kind of churning up the gas in the galaxy, could that also kind of help star formation in some way? Yeah, that's mixing a really good point because, in fact, uh, supernovae also both inhibit and help star formation depending on the circumstances. Sure. The truth is you can probably make either direction happen. This is probably why I'm an observer, because the theorists can sort of make a lot of things happen, and, and to me, I sort of believe it when I can see it in the data.
So we've been looking for feedback, for signs of feedback for a long time, and it's amazingly scarce, let's put it that way. So there's a clear relationship between the supermassive black hole and its host galaxy, with the more massive black holes living in more massive galaxies. But Meg and her colleagues recently found a supermassive black hole that is totally disproportionate to its galaxy. At first, that's the thing I was really interested in. The black hole is very, very large. I mean, it's comparable to another three or four, five known black holes that are that size. But those are different for a couple reasons. First of all, the ones that are local to us have had a long time to form, so it's not so crazy they're big. So they've pretty much had the whole time of the universe to be accreting material. Exactly, exactly. So, that, so it's not crazy that a few get to be very, very massive. And you're talking five, seven billion times the mass Maybe of the 10, billion, 10 billion, 10 billion of that order. This, this black hole we found is almost 10 billion solar masses. And then there are a few at high redshift, as I said, very early on in the universe that are ridiculously massive, maybe a billion solar masses. But they could just be a few oddballs mm -hmm. because, because they were found in surveys of huge volumes of space. And when you do that, you see rare things. Yes, if right? you look at enough, then you're going to find right. these oddballs. Yeah. So, so maybe the first thing that was weird about ours is we were looking, we were following up a much deeper survey that covered a fairly small area and thus a, a relatively small volume. And, and what that means is it's designed to find the average galaxy and the average black hole because they're common. And so in, to see a black hole this big was just shocking because there shouldn't have been one that big in this small volume. Then we figured out what the galaxy brightness was because we had very nice data from Hubble and elsewhere and it was way too small by a factor of about a hundred. Right, so it's not just a little bit no, off. No, it's, it's way off. And if you push everything as hard as you can, you can maybe get that up to a factor of 20 or 30, you know, but it's, it's just a crazy, crazy object. So it doesn't fit at all the relation you referred to, uh, I referred to whatever, by, about the mass of the black hole being proportional to the mass of the galaxy. It's way off that relation. And it suggests that the black hole grew, instead of growing together through this constant feedback, uh, and staying proportional through the whole time. In fact, the black hole grew first, and it's gonna take the galaxy the rest of the 13 billion years left to it to get even close to where it needs to be to be a normal black hole galaxy pair. While Meg Yuri spends most of her time researching active galaxies far, far away, Back on Earth, she has campaigned extensively on the issue of gender equity in astronomy. She was instrumental in setting up the first Women in Astronomy conference in America in 1992. Yet when she joined Yale University as a professor in 2001, she was the only female faculty member in the department. Things are slowly changing, and in particular, the Australian astronomical community has worked hard over the last five years to promote gender equity and create a more broadly inclusive working environment. However, there's still much work to be done, especially in other science fields too. I worked at the Space Telescope Science Institute, which is actually a fairly young organization. It, the very first people were hired in 1981 which is long after 
anti-discrimination laws were passed, and I think also after people would admit there was any kind of discrimination. So lo and behold, I go to the Space Telescope Science Institute where there were about 60 faculty scientists, and there was one woman out of 60 in the modern day. And this is at a time when women were receiving more than 10%, I think about 15% of the PhDs in astronomy were going to women, so it was a huge mismatch. And also it's, you know, for people who haven't experienced this being in an extreme minority, it's a very uncomfortable thing to experience day in and day out. You find a lot of the classic, you know, people don't hear what you say, you can make suggestions that are ignored, and your colleague, male colleague, will make that suggestion a few minutes later, and everyone goes, oh, what a great idea. It's very demoralizing, really. It's and almost I, like you're invisible. Like you're invisible, or and you don't count. You're sort of being told implicitly you don't count. So for me, it, it was a slow accumulation of, of this sense of not belonging. And then I thought, what can we do about this? You know, and why are there so few? And and so on. And, and I didn't get much traction at first among my colleagues, I will say, or I mean among most of my colleagues. But the women, we really helped each other. And uh, I think this getting together and talking out our issues and trying to help one another solve problems, I think that was really useful. So anyway, we were desperate. I think that's the way to say it. We were desperate. We decided to have a meeting. And actually, although we, of course, programmed very interesting talks and everything, the most, probably the most influential thing at that meeting was that there were 150 women astronomers in a room. You found each other. And we were looking around going, oh my God, there are a lot of us. And that just changed our mindset, right? From being, well, you know, not many women want to do this. So wait a minute, there's a lot of women. Why aren't we progressing the way the men are? So that's where it started. And I think our male colleagues really stepped up. That was the second part of it. At some point, you know, they had to admit this is not statistically normal and there must be something going on and let's figure out what it was. So that was the start. We've all finally understood that a lot, there is a lot of implicit unconscious bias against any group that is not the majority group. It's kind of a shorthand for how we understand the world. And it's a very natural thing. It's not evil. It's not motivated by, you know, the wish to discriminate, but it is natural that when you think of a scientist, you picture Einstein in his white coat rather than Marie Curie. Mm -hmm. So we need to confront that and admit to it before we can correct for it. And I think that's where things have gotten a little bit stuck in the physics world. You know, it's interesting, physics and astronomy really have the same skill set. You need the same mathematical sophistication, the same computing ability, the same background. I mean, astronomy majors take physics classes. But if you look at the two professions, the fraction who are women in physics is about half the fraction in astronomy. And astronomy has made much more rapid progress in the last 20 years than physics. And one of the big differences is in, in astronomy, everybody, including you know the male leadership, has expectations that women will be giving talks at meetings and women will be nominated for prizes and so on. These things have become part of the conversation. And in physics, there's still this, well, you know, to be really blunt, I'm probably offending everyone, you know, physicists are in denial. They keep saying we are objective and we are, we are gender blind. And as soon as someone says that, I know they haven't, they haven't read the social science. That's right. Because that it, it's both male and females that have this this gender. That's bias. right. Females that's right. As well, Think yes. Of a male scientist. That's kind of the exactly. Thank you for thank you for bringing that up. That's that's very true. It's not that, yeah. It's not that men are biased against women. It's that we're all 
biased against the minority in any profession. You know, the, the, the importance of leaders, role models for young girls is amazing. You know, when I went to a science museum or a planetarium when I was a child, which was ages ago, I admit, there were no women docents or women outreach heads. You have no sense that you could get from here to there unless you can see someone who's sort of in that direction. You know, if you had asked me uh, at age 25 or whatever, you know, I guess toward the end of graduate school, maybe if you'd asked me when I was a postdoc, could you ever imagine yourself being president of the American Astronomical Society? I just would have started laughing, I think. So it's really kind of strange to find myself in this position. Thank you for listening to the Speaking With podcast. Just a reminder, you can subscribe to this series on iTunes and on TuneIn Radio. If you liked this podcast or have ideas and suggestions for the Speaking With series, please leave a review or comment through iTunes.